We'll start, as always, by taking a look at the Sunday papers and my panel in studio to help me do that this morning. Jared Howland, Irish Examiner, Columnist, Public Affairs Consultant and former Senior Political Advisor. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Gavin. Uh, Richie Oakley is the editor of the Ireland edition of The Times. Morning, Richie. Morning. And Sheila Riley is the head of Digital with Iconic News, regional newspaper group and former editor of The Longford Leader. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning, uh, Thank you all very much for coming in to be with me this morning. Let's have a quick look at what's on the front pages of the newspapers. Um, I'm going to start with the Irish Mail on Sunday because John Lee, the political editor there, uh, has been the first out of the traps with a lot of the talk about Trump's visit and whether it will go ahead and some of the issues that might arise. He was the first to report a couple of weeks ago, even before the government seemed to know it, that he was going to be coming in June. Uh, And he reports that the latest row over the possibility of the whole thing collapsing over a dispute in venues is, and I quote, baloney. Because, he says, President Donald Trump is willing to meet Leo Varadkar at a venue other than his Doonbeg Trump International Golf Resort, if it involves diplomatic, diplomatic wrangling, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. Uh, the Mail on Sunday, which was the first to break the news of the intended visit last month, understands the Taoiseach is happy to meet Mr Trump at Shannon Airport as a compromise. The government does not see the proposed venue for the meeting between the two leaders as a deal breaker, which seems to go slightly against some of the coverage suggesting that uh, having it in Doonbeg may be a deal breaker, because if the Taoiseach is supposed to be the host, then you can't be hosting it in a venue owned by the attendee but but nonetheless uh, John Lee suggests that the whole thing is still ready to go and that Doombeg uh, may be uh, shuffled away instead of uh, Shannon as a compromise uh, the front page of the Sunday Business Post meanwhile Tech firms lawyering up to defend potential data breaches, says Watchdog. The leading tech firms based in Ireland are, quote, lawyering up and becoming, quote, combative ahead of a major showdown over potential data breaches, according to Helen Dixon, the Data Protection Commissioner. Major tech firms are expected to be levied with multi-million euro fines starting this summer. The exchanges between the two sides now have an edge, Helen Dixon has told the Sunday Business Post in an interview. Dixon's role in investigating data breaches is pivotal because she is the EU's lead investigator and can levy fines of up to 4% of the firm's global turnover. Her comments come after another week of controversy for the tech sector stoked by revelations that WhatsApp, a Facebook-owned service used by consumers throughout the country, was hacked, leaving it vulnerable to the installation of spyware. Uh, worth stressing that Dixon did not name or mention any company by name in her comments about the investigations uh, but Aaron Rogan reports that it is possible that she's referring to Facebook because of the 17 investigations currently open in her office relating to multinational tech firms eight of them relate to Facebook. Um, also on the front page of the, the Business Post uh, cracking story by Hugh O'Connell grant of €41,000 for Donegal Mayor's driveway the Fianna Fáil Mayor of Donegal benefited from a €41,000 council grant to build a driveway up to his house after an application was submitted in his mother's name <coughs> Councillor Seamus O'Donnell insisted he had done nothing wrong after his mother Kathleen O'Donnell who lives at a different address successfully applied for the grant in 2017 Donegal County Council awarded the grant to carry out work on the 600 metre stretch of driveway leading up to a house owned by O'Donnell and his wife in Gortahawk Village in North Donegal uh, he is quoted inside the paper as saying that he hasn't done anything wrong and he shouldn't be disqualified from getting council grants just because he's a politician uh, which is a fair point Front page of the Sunday Times, meanwhile. Uh, people might remember last week that it was Justine McCarthy who reported on the front page of the Sunday Times that part of the, the basis on which uh, Granahan McCourt was offered the broadband contract was because of the financial means of another company called McCourt Global, which is owned by a brother of the major investor in the broadband firm. Uh, but now it turns out that they may not actually be involved in the whole thing at all. Uh, Justine McCarthy says Michal Martin has said it's time for the government to come clean after a source close to an American company named by the Department of Communication as being a prime investor in the €5 billion national broadband plan has denied being involved. McCourt Global, owned by Frank McCourt, who is the billionaire brother of the preferred bidder David McCourt, was named by the department as one of the three ultimate investors in a reply to a doll question by Richard Bruton last Wednesday. 
The New York and Los Angeles investment company, which owns the French football club Olympic Marseille, did not answer questions from the Sunday Times, but a source familiar to the company denied that it was an investor. And Granaham Accord Dublin, Ireland, which is the preferred bidder, implicitly confirmed this on Friday when it said that the investors in the broadband project were itself and another investment company, Tetrad, uh, none of which are in, uh, actually owned by Frank McCourt, the brother of David McCourt. So um, all quite uh, quite mysterious about how all of that is handled as well. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, no vaccine, uh, no school for vaccine dodgers. The Irish public is in favour of a ban on unvaccinated uh, school attending children, unvaccinated children, unvaccinated schools. That would be an interesting idea. Uh, the Irish public is in favour of a ban on unvaccinated children attending school, but also supports parents refusing vaccinations for their children if they have concerns about their safety. A new poll for the Sunday Times has revealed. According to the Behaviour and Attitudes poll, seven out of ten voters believe children should have to receive the recommended package package of vaccinations before being allowed to attend school just under one in five 19 percent felt they should not eleven uh, percent did not have an opinion on the front page of the sunday independent uh, how trap was laid for suspect gardi trail of misinformation central to corruption probe uh, this is by Maeve Sheehan about the arrest of three gardi earlier in the week she says that a trail of misinformation laid by an elite gardi unit helped to uncover a network of suspected Garda corruption. The National Bureau of Criminal Investigations circulated misinformation about Garda operations as part of covert surveillance on a suspect Garda. The intention was to track the misinformation to find out whether it would end up with criminals. Misinformation was part of the process, said one informed source. Basically, false information was put out to see where it would end up and who it ended up with. A lot of which reminds me of sometimes when you have uh, the minutes of meetings and they're they're put out in slightly different wording so that if the wording is then quoted in the newspaper afterwards that you know who the source and um, also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, and we will start talking about this in just a moment, revealed the 1.2 billion euro bill to buy social housing, to buy social housing. Uh, Philip Ryan and Wayne O'Connor have done FOI requests for every local authority in the country and they've added up all the figures and they say that the government has spent 1.2 billion euro throughout the housing crisis buying up almost 7,200 privately built homes directly competing with first time buyers in the property market. New figures show how local authorities have spent the significant sum buying privately built properties for social housing even though it would cost the state less to build its own new houses and apartments instead. The revelation raises further questions as to whether it is government policy to avoid directly building housing to meet social needs. Uh, Richie Oakley, what do you make of that? Because there's two ways of looking at it. You can say, yes, the government is using its financial firepower to squeeze out first-time buyers or to force them into a bidding war. But also, if the government wants more social housing, it is quicker to buy a home that's already there than to spend years building your own, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, people... uh you know, people dealing with high rents and people in homelessness are going to be sick of hearing people saying that the housing crisis was a long time in the making and it's going to be a long time in the solving. But unfortunately, that is the the reality to the housing crisis that we're in. Um, a- anything anyone does to buy a house, to provide housing, aff- affects the, the system. You build one, you move people into it from renting, mm. someone else gets to rent in that one and on and on it goes. So any type of movement that's... A, that's helping supply, which is the main problem, is good. In this case, I suppose there is a question of well, whether does the existing government have an ideological um, opposition to, to building, to getting really, to, to rolling up the sleeves and getting down and dirty and trying to solve social, social housing. Or are they kind of hands off and letting, you know, developers and, and provide, you know, let developers sort it. Mm. Um and I'd say it's a little bit of the former, to be honest. Um, but in this case, you could also make the argument that, you know, the, 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 the price of, of 
the social housing unit to buy one mm. was 158,000 nationally and 223,000 in Dublin. But the cost of building a new home in Dublin would have been 199,000. It's not a massive uh, a difference there. No, but um, it does produce a unit immediately <coughs> rather than having to, to wait a couple of years for the planning permission to come through and construction and everything. It does. Else and the other, the, the, the other thing as well is, is they're buying these houses, presumably they're buying them in the areas where it's not just social housing. And we saw the difficulties before when, in Dublin in particular, when just social housing was built mm. and people were moved off into social housing often without other facilities and things they need um, there's an interesting piece in, in the Sunday Independent by Dan O'Brien where he's yes. saying for the first time there are signs that the housing crisis is is starting to go in the right direction so he says um yeah, explain his logic because I, I don't think that there'd be too many listeners okay. who might necessarily <laughs> okay. uh, agree on instinct so, with what so he's saying. He, so here it is. So for the first time in six years, pay levels are rising faster than house prices. So the relationship between people's incomes and the price of buying a property is stabilised. If you're buying uh, a house, but rent is going up by 8% per year. Anyway, yeah. sorry, okay, so then there's two other sets of figures that he says show, show, show reasons for optimism. The number of new homes being built is continuing to grow rapidly and rent increases have slowed sharply and are now within touching in, in distance of pay increase. He also says that uh, there's going to be an increase of 23% in the number of new houses built in the first three months of this year and it looks like as if we're going to build 22,000 homes this year which is mm. still nowhere near enough but it is going um, in the right direction Now that's no comfort to people uh, I suppose paying massive rents and certainly no comfort to people in homelessness but it, it is a sign that that the, the crisis is starting to sort itself out a mm. little bit. Um, Sheila, what do you think of that? I mean, I don't think there'd be many people out there who will necessarily think that it's beginning to sort itself out just because the increase is in line with wages because that suggests that you're only okay if you can already if afford your rent or yeah, your mortgage. Yeah, and that is that is the issue. I think you're, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, like the Minister said, you know, he pointed out yesterday, I think that 18,000 houses were built last year, you know, and one in four of them went to social housing. The reality is that when you pull it all back, you know, it's still not it's still not enough for people. I mean, that's the, that's the truth of it. Mm. The, the affordability, the affordability issue is is massive, uh, and that's the biggest problem. I like I looked at um, the figures today there in, in the Sunday Independent. When you look at the council buying um, the privately built houses, and like when you when you boil it down over that eight year period, say there's 122. So obviously, I look at Longford straight away because uh, mm. that's my base. You know, that just works out at like 15 houses a year, like basically in that time. Yeah. Ross, Ross Common it, it, is yeah, less than 10. It is worth stressing that it is eight years. So it's since Finnegale came you know, to power like in 2011. It's very, yeah, it really is. It's it, you know, how could that be enough for for the housing to to come to deal with the housing issue in those rural areas? And I often think that housing, the housing issue is is tagged as a as an urban issue, when mm. in reality, it's as big an issue in in rural areas it's just kind of more hidden because there's a lot more uh, you know people living in family homes and there's a, there's a, it's a lot hidden it's a lot more hidden you yeah. don't have the same I think it's the, not as visible the, probably. the candidates going canvassing at the moment knocking on doors are finding houses where you know these the, so, the, you know, the hidden homes generations yes. people, uh, you know yeah. pe- people you know a lot of pe- generations in one house I think mm. that that that's still, and that's you know, a major issue down in, in the country. Yeah. That's, you're seeing a lot of that. You're seeing, you know, as you say, the kind of the generations of people living in, in houses, and and that's the problem. So when you see, when you boil down those figures, and you see, well, how could it be sufficient for what's there? And the big problem for the local authorities is that the skills to build these houses have been lost in the local authorities over mm. the years. And when you say it would cost less to build, the reality is that it would cost a lot to ratchet up again to build the level of skill, to build the skills to where they need them to be, mm. to build those type of houses. And that is a key problem well, I, for them, I you think know, as well. The, the shortage skills, I think, is, is bigger in the market too because we had Shane Dempsey from the Construction Industry Federation sitting in the studio only last week and he was talking about how they found it difficult to even get apprentices into the trade because people still don't see it as necessarily being all that stable and that they're necessarily 
necessarily isn't really enough manpower actually on building sites around the country. We don't have the capacity to build more no matter what will in the world <laughs> I might was, be. I was at a housing co- housing event in, in Longford recently enough and uh, there was a builder there, and a developer, and he stood up and he said that they have nobody under the age of 40 on their building sites at the minute. They cannot find young people to work. They cannot hire them. It, they're just not available and they do not want to enter into the industry. Millennials these days. Just, just can't get to work. <laughs> uh, George, do you agree with uh, Dan O'Brien's thesis that the housing crisis has now uh, gone past its worst and we're heading in the right direction? Well, in a in a theoretical sense, he is right uh, in that the pace of building is uh, increasing. The uh, rate of rent increase mm. is diminishing. And then he makes the final point, which actually he's encouraged by, but I'm deeply worried by, that the rate of wage increases is exceeding the rate of uh, property price and rental increases. Therefore, things are becoming marginally more affordable okay. and, and for the first you? time. Because we did this before, Gavin, when wages chase property. It was an absolute disaster that ended in cataclysm. I was in the middle of it. It doesn't work, I promise you. And it will end in tears. And this is, brings me back to that March yesterday, raised the roof, yes. led by the trade unions, who led the lemmings over the cliff during the boom, to chase, have the wages chase the property. Okay. Other metaphors are available. Good, and, but go on. Well, um, I, 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 th- I think you need to be frank about this because the consequences are, are truly awful. And, you know, if to have a successful housing policy, you need a sustainable tax base uh, and then you need a land use policy that's supported by transport mm-hmm. policy. But yesterday's coalition marching were people who um, were opposed to water charges frequently, not universally. But not universally, no. No, but there were people who uh, are uh, prominently opposed to carbon charges. Mm. And I think of some of the left wing parties who are very prominent on that march yesterday. They are opposed, for example, in relation to Lewis uh, being turned into Metro past Ranelagh, which will have enormous consequences for capacity to build uh, in, in, in South County Dublin because it's the difference between 8,000 passengers an hour and 20,000 passengers an hour as between Lewis and Metro. Mm. And to figure out the difference in that out in places like Sandyford, where the capacity for all that new building is. And these are these people, not all of them are in all of these bandwagons, but some of them are in some. Mm. And some most prominent, by the way, managed to hop and skip between several of the bandwagons. It's completely okay, I well, we have the, we have the central bank rules at the moment on, on borrowing and they do seem to have uh, control. I mean, they, you know, mm. part of the issue during the the, the the, the crisis was that the banks were able to lend crazy amounts of money to borrowers who necessarily weren't able to pay it back. But yeah, I mean, okay. at least that uh, is, in, is in place but now. Has it not equally had the effect, though, of meaning that uh, ordinary people who are, OK, perhaps, you know, logically or rationally constrained in how much they can borrow because there are so many other institutional buyers with tremendous firepower yeah. that then they are just completely blown out of the water? Yeah, and it hits the renters as well, because uh, you obviously have to save a certain amount of money to, to, to borrow the borrow amount of money. And if you're paying high rents, that can be really difficult. And a couple of parties have said that if you if you're going to relax, like I don't think you should relax those rules too much at all, really, because because of of, of the stability that they provide. But if you mm. are going to relax, them, the argument that people who can show a pattern of paying rents consistently over a period of time mm. should maybe be gi- given a, a bit 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 more of a chance. Yeah, well, which brings me back to a point that I wanted to, to make to you, George. By the way, uh, Paul D. Bloom has been in touch on on Twitter to say that some of that 1.2 billion could have been used uh, buying back houses which were initially social housing and then sold off. And you know, there's a prospect that maybe in fact that that yeah, might have been what was done. Yeah, that's a very valid point. You know, in relation to um, the amount of social housing that's sold off, you know, or passed on from generation one generation to the next. Mm. But there is an issue in relation to that that really needs to be teased out properly. Yeah. You know, that that stock is retained by the local 
local authorities are not sold off. Mm. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about, though, Jordan, and I, I take your point about how we've had the uh, you know wages chasing property prices before, but we are also in a situation now where fewer and fewer people have ever been able to afford sustainably a roof over their heads. So how do you tell people who are currently spending 50% or more of their take-home pay on rent that they can't possibly you know, continue to look for wage increases or try to deal with all of this when they are already struggling to keep the roof over their heads that they currently have? Well, if you're the person in the silo whose half your wages is going to pay rent, you can't afford to save for a mortgage, you're going to be pension poor because... Well, you're certainly not saving mm. pension if you can't save for a mortgage. But if they have no and prospect of saving your current, And your current accommodation is probably very inadequate. Um, it's very difficult to say to that person, uh, you know, you need to take the hit for some bigger cause and some longer term. But that's what government is for. It's what leadership's about. It's the lesson we need to have learned. But it's not necessarily... And by the way, it's also a lesson that I think that um, media needs to, to, you know, be aware of because, I mean, part of... The boom that became the crash was, you know, a hard instinct in the public conversation of which politics was primarily and the government today primarily overwhelmingly responsible for. But they weren't alone. Mm. Uh, the banks and the stockbroking houses were uh, dishing out reports to say keep going to beat the band. Mm. And there was a widespread, almost universal cheerleading in the media. Um, one other piece that's in the papers today about the whole question of housing is one by uh, Elaine Byrne in today's Sunday Business Post. She's writing about the Sinn Féin bill, which was voted down during the the week. Uh, Sinn Féin had wanted to insert a new line into the Constitution which would have said, and I've got it here in front of me, I quote The state recognises the right of all citizens to adequate, appropriate, secure safe and affordable housing and the state as guardian of the common good shall through its laws and policies take appropriate steps to ensure the realisation of this right in accordance with the principles of social justice That was voted down in the Dáil by 60 votes to 36 this week. Sheila, any idea why it might have been? No, well look, I mean she's making the point in it, what exactly does it mean? Like what would it mean to put in a Constitution um, entitlement to housing anyway and how would it be implemented and she refers to South Africa in the piece you know which I think has had a law since 2001 and has actually just basically failed to deal with the issue mm. ever since then you know and I kind of think she has a point in relation to this you know that there's an element of populism around that kind of bill and this suggestion it sounds good on paper but in reality how do you make that work you know how does it actually come to pass and then what are the implications what are the further implications for that for uh, for our society, not just the cost implications, but the social implications as well, you know. So, like, I, I understand why, in a way, I mean, it's not a very popular thing to say because people like the idea that we would, you know, row up for this and everybody would be entitled to a house. But, like, what does it mean? I, I still kind of struggle with it myself. So Richie, I can see where she's coming from. It's a classic Sinn Féin, <laughs> Sinn Féin move, uh, create create this, this, this thing and then it doesn't get supported. But we wanted to put a constitutional right to housing. You know, it's an easy thing to say exactly... It, you know, like Elaine is a legal background and she can't work out uh, what mm. it means. And she, she ends up just asking questions, you know, what precisely the practical implications. Um, and she says, look, you know, Sinn Féin can argue that 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 that, that the rebuilding Ireland isn't working and mm. that this would put a layer of protection there for people. But I don't understand fully how that would work. I don't think it, it it's something we need to be looking at right now. I mean, this, this is a supply crisis. Mm. Do everything we can create the conditions whereby houses can be built in, in by developers, by 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 councils, if you want it to be by councils, by the various housing associations, make the land on near railway stations available, make the land all along the, the train tracks, yeah. build the infrastructure, get the systems in place so people can get the houses built. But another issue as well, I travel the country for work and like what astonishes me all the time is the number of vacant houses out there. I'm not talking about like the vacant house register, I'm talking about empty houses or houses that 
clearly need some refurbishment and whatever to be brought up to a modern standard if you like I just can't understand why there's not more incentives for people to mm. get to get those houses back into the market and I'm not just talking about out in rural areas I see them along the sides of the road but I'm also talking about in towns as well like it astonishes me um, the amount of vacant property and empty houses in these towns and that's just I, nothing can be done I with them it seems to me I remember very vividly driving through a village on my way west for a day's work uh, only about 12 million people living in them uh, the frosted of course evaporated yeah. off the roofs I'd say about three quarters of the, the roofs in that village still had frost on them because the houses were just totally empty retail yeah. units abandoned and it was a pretty grim place to have to drive through uh, Pat Manning has been in touch via Twitter to say that my show sounds like Fox News today all the fault of Sinn Féin and the unions which I blame solely on Jared Howland Richie Oakley and Sheila Riley who are my panel in studio We, uh, this we don't morning. have the hair the combined hair for Fox News here No I think really. between the four of us Barry from Wexford has also been in touch to say that could some of the roofs with frost still on them not be down to good insulation he says winking perhaps knowing right well that the, the frost on those roofs is because mm. nobody is living in those homes Anyway as I said Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock Jared Howland Richie Oakley and Sheila Riley are in studio to go through this morning's newspapers. Um, the Mail on Sunday, as I mentioned, uh, seems to suggest that the whole uh, debate about uh, whether Donald Trump may or may not visit because of the perceived row over uh, Dune Beg being the venue is all baloney, as he says, and that the Mr. Trump is happy to meet Shannon Airport, uh, meet Leo Varadkar in Shannon Airport uh, as a compromise. Um, all happy days then, Jared, presumably. Well, my favourite Trump story is Hugh O'Connell's piece in the Sunday Business Post, where Finian McGrath, Minister of State, Independent Alliance, John Halligan, Minister <laughs> Minister of State, Independent Alliance, great friends of Polly Nang, uh, and who, of course, wanted to, to go there oh, to solve the, the world's problem. Mm. Notwithstanding the fact that they would gr- go uh, to Polly Nang, to North Korea, to Young assist Yang. the regime mm. there, they uh, will not uh, visit with President Trump should he come and they'll boycott him and they'll protest. So I guess these things are a matter of taste and discernment. But however, it should be said in favour of Ministers McGrath and Halligan in that taking this stance, of course, they have gotten what they love most, which is attention. That story, the headline is Ministers Ready to Protest and the minute I saw it, I was, oh geez, who, who is it? Richard Bruton, Owen Murphy? And then it's, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I should have known it's the two. <laughs> the they would do anything. <laughs> anyway, I should stop. Uh, Richard, what you, your general Trump, take Trump, on what should be raised? If Trump is in Shannon and Leo Varadkar is coming down from, from Dublin, the, the best thing for them is to kind of meet somewhere around halfway, somewhere close to the motorway perhaps I know where this is going they can have a supermax and sort well, it all he's, out he's, he's a big fan of KFC Hubbard's. couldn't they yeah do, like this thing of, of like where Ireland says, I mean, we in fairness to Leo, he does uh, to, to, to the Heshock, he does have a uh, we have had incidents in the past where he's made uh, sharp comments uh, to, to people who, who, who needed to be mm. told of Ireland's pos- position on things. He, he, you know, he, he has a record for doing that. So when he says, look, he, you know, he's going to meet him, he's going to talk to the issues that are and the values that are important to Ireland. I, I genuinely believe, believe he will. And I think that's a, a good thing. So I think, you know, fine. You know, Trump is coming. You know, we're hardly going to mm. ban him from 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 the country. Uh, we only, we you know, it took us a, a good few weeks there to ban a guy who thinks that uh, you know has radical ideas about uh, homosexuals, and like that's the first time that's ever been done. So mm. I don't see any problem with him coming here. Um, it, you know, and and the Taoiseach filling him in in on Ireland's values. Fine, um, Sheila. Do you not think that though? And I talked in the first part about how the whole uh, optics of if Leo Varadkar is supposed to be the host of the meeting, then it would not necessarily have been too appropriate to have the meeting on Trump's mm. turf and I think I get that and I think Shannon Airport is very uh, convenient new to a ground but it also does portray 
as if Donald Trump sort of wants to be here and that having to meet with Leo Varadkar is something of an inconvenience that he just wants to have it somewhere that he's going to be anyway and that he's well, not no, really Trump, all that interested in engagement. No, I think Trump loves the pomp and ceremony. Trump just wants to come somewhere where he'll be celebrated. He wants, you know, he wants the marching bands and the dancing girls and the red singers and, and the right carpets. Like, I'm sure didn't we provide it before? Why wouldn't didn't we do we? it again? You know, I mean, that's the reality for him. It's the ego that drives him uh, and that's, he's notoriously skin, thin-skinned and that's where the issue could come into pa- come to pass because if they won't meet on, on his terms you know that's that's when he can yeah. book and potentially just decide right I'm going to Scotland this is much easier you know it's, I mean you can't escape from just the feeling that this is just one big promotional tour for his hotel <laughs> To be fair know. they do have to close down America for a day when we head over for Paddy's Day like people standing around outside the libraries going why can't I go in Um Richie though on a serious note it, the, these meetings they often tend to be much shorter than we portray and that, that annual meeting in the Oval Office now is often barely just half an hour and it's a bit of a whistle stop tour through everything that the two governments might want to raise uh, given the fairly limited time that Donald Trump is likely to spend with Leo Varadkar what would be at the top of your, your hit list for issues to raise with them? Crikey I wasn't expecting that um, <laughs> Yeah Yeah <laughs> Well, the dramatic tension now waiting to hear exactly how amazing the top story is going to be. Well, I'd imagine he's going to talk about Brexit. I imagine they're going to talk about trade. I imagine going Ireland, you know, we're going to explain Ireland's position in relation to that. I don't know if they're going to get into to, to, to social issues. Mm. Um, I, I, think it, I think if you were Trump, you'd be wanting to know Ireland's take on Brexit. Where is that going? Stability in Europe. Um and just general things like that, more more economic issues, I'd say, would be of, of major concern. Yeah. You've totally stumped me here. I'm just okay. kind of rabbiting. Uh, Jerry, you might have had a, a better idea of your sleeve. What would you like to raise with Donald well, Trump if you were there? The trade issues are absolutely critical as between the US and the EU, and it's also the, the US uh, tax uh, tax policy and how uh, it is involved in the OECD process and how absolutely mission critical that is for Ireland in terms of the outcome over the next year or 18 months and then of course there's this massive recent swerve in Trump immigration policy which he has said he wishes to fundamentally upend uh, a policy that's been in place in the United States since the mid 60s uh, which previously uh, favoured countries like Ireland, which are essentially European, white, and, uh, and so on, mm. but which uh, haven't uh, since the 60s. And he wants to to reorder it on, on, on that basis, not on the basis of race, I should add, but on the basis of skills, uh, and including language, language skills. Yeah. And all of that would suit us being English-speaking and, and better educated. Uh, he has it's, the Senate on his us, side. It suits us in a kind of a narrow sense because it would suit Irish immigrants. But doesn't it sort of betray the whole American ideal that now they're deciding you can only get in and make a life for yourself if you're already equipped and have the opportunities to do so rather than arriving there and allowing America to mould and sculpt you into something productive? Uh, it may well do. And it's certainly, uh, you know, not the message emblazoned on, on the Statue of Liberty, uh, you know, where those Irish immigrants mm. who are penniless, huddled more, penniless, yeah. poor, illiterate, Irish speaking. Many of them couldn't even speak English. Uh, however, uh, that was then. This is now. This is a big deal. And uh, we have to be engaged. In it. Um, Sheila, what would you like to raise with Donald Trump if you were the person in the room? Well, I think what he should engage with him is in relation to the visa issue, you know, uh, and it is about immigration, it's about kind of the, the sorting out the issue for the people, the 
non-documented or undocumented mm. as we call them you know who are over there and uh, they ha- as we know there's been an ongoing issue with visas, visas there that has been negotiated and has been going through the process there so if we could get access to those Australian visas those spare Australian visas mm. as well that would be hugely helpful it would be those sort of the issues that I'd be raising with them you know and I do think uh, Jared is right in relation to trade trade is absolutely crucial The US is obviously as well the restrictions coming in on abortion in, in various different areas in the, in the States as well could, could be an, a topic given that we've gone in the other the direction here. Mm. Um, Dan Long, by the way, has tweeted in to say, who is the clown who thinks the trade unions caused the economic crash? And I let him get away with it. That clown would be Jared Howland. Who That's I think me. Was, <coughs> was probably making the point that how were trade unions responsible for the uh, they were the Just co- to elaborate. They were the core part of social partnership. Social partnership, uh, you know, uh, uh, supported, as it be said, very actively by the government, uh, increased public service wages generally, wages more so across the economy in ways that were unsustainable. People look back on the banks. Mm. That was uh, obviously huge, both in absolute monetary terms and psychologically, but actually public spending, mm. of which public sector pay was the greater part, actually did us in worse, more longer than any other thing it inflated the property market which fed into the banking crisis mm. it was from purse principles a disaster and the key words that you said there were with the support of the government absolutely yeah. who organised it abetted it kept it going mm. and slapped the backside of the mm. horse as it jumped every fence for 10 years out of interest I, what I were you I, doing between I was a special <laughs> advisor the reason I can speak about this with such authority is I was a special advisor working with that government so I remember as well I also remember that you, you'd, you'd pop the media like I mean, I mean, the media did make mistakes in terms of of, of dealing but with. They were with yeah, yeah, but I remember. I remember, I, I remember a lot of articles questioning why there wasn't. And more by the way, the lack of shame and introspection since has always reminded me that the be- media is not be all and end all in terms of information and knowledge. I like the idea that you've got uh, reminders of past failings lurking around every corner. This is the lonely bitter guys club, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, Donald Trump and Leo Varadkar, one of the re- ways in which Leo Varadkar had managed to really command a leap over Fianna Fáil in the opinion polls, and we'll talk about this uh, more in detail in the next hour with Hugh O'Connell, uh, but just for a couple of minutes now, uh, was when he uh, was perceived as managing to get two fingers uh, to the DUP the Christmas before last by getting the backstop negotiated into the uh, withdrawal deal um, seems to perhaps be uh, a little bit on the wane now based, based on two opinion polls today um, Sheila do you think there's any prospect that Leo Varadkar might try to cynically use the opportunity of a Donald Trump visit to actually try and be look a little bit more confrontational or a little bit more of a strong man to a try and win edgier. back some support yeah potentially he could I mean uh, there's the Polls today show that he's kind of uh, his star is in danger of of waning. Um, and uh, Brendan O'Connor has a good piece on Sunday Independent about this. You know, but how his image and the image of Fine Gael is really built around Varadkar now and kind of this idea of this modern progressive. Mm. Um, leader if you like and that's where they've got their relevance and that's their authenticity which as Charles will tell you is key for all mm. parties to appear authentic at all times but that when his brand suffers and it kind of is on the way and so does the parties as a result you yeah. know so uh, and that's where his difficulty is so I thought Brendan O'Connor's piece is good because it talked about how he's Leo was good on the big moments and that could be where you're right in terms mm. of Trump you know that Trump visit making a point doing a, an end you know and he, he, he took a, took on the church um, but that's that's potentially where Leo could come to come to the fore. 
but it's the dry, dull detail of administration yeah. where he he's not so good, and that could be could, could catch him in the long term. I don't really know if I agree with that bit of it though. Yeah, well, O'Connor's article. Well, I don't know whether whether it's even possible that we say whether we know anyone is good with the dull bureaucracy of yeah. politics because and is that's that not stuff what we don't civil see. Civil servants are for, and what departments are for. Is that not where that's all handled? Well, Fine Gael, like I mean, they're supposed to be the party of, of fiscal responsibility, and they're also the party that have overseen the NCH uh, huge bill increase. Um, now broadband and look, uh, look this argument like rural people need broadband definitely that, there's no dispute about that but the way in which that whole process has been handled is, mm. is not good I mean you can ju- you can go through it uh, in detail uh, and when you look at the advice that they were getting el- elsewhere you, you know there's issues with the way that that scheme has been, been run Maybe you uh, should ask uh, Donald he- Trump for some advice they, and communication They still have difficulty in health they still have difficulty in housing and even Pascal Dunne who uh, has been uh, criticised by various fiscal uh, watchdogs in terms of how he's run budgets and things like this. These are the big key areas mm. where Fianna Gael, Gael are supposed to be solid as a rock mm. and, and they haven't been. And when it's raised with them, instead of, instead of uh, you, you, the response you get is kind of tetchiness. Uh, you know, that's the point Brendan O'Connor is making mm. and it's, it's an interesting column. Right. Fine Gael are Jerry deeply uncomfortable yeah. looking at themselves in the mirror because they've morphed into Fianna Fáil Fall. during its boomy version. Yeah. And I think what Fianna Fáil, or sorry, what Fine Gael has done is they've alienated just enough of their economically conservative base and alienated just enough of their culturally conservative base to be down slightly in a situation where their margins are increasingly thin. Like uh, the various announcements before the elections, the, the, the grants to farmers, broadband plan and all the, the timing ar- around those like it's so transparent and when, when it's called out to say oh no the, the, these are just these are just ready now mm. you know I mean you're oh, yeah, no just <laughs> increasingly people do see that for what it is you know people are not uh, blind to that one person has texted in to suggest that Leo Varadkar should ask Trump to lend us the US Army Corps of Engineers to build the 50,000 homes we need six months should do it uh, they reckon uh, someone else on our earlier topic about housing and whether the, the worst of the crisis is over tells us that they're 35 years old paying 1300 euros a month in rent for a room in a house share with two others they're well paid but still can't afford suitable housing in Dublin they work 12 hour days to try and save a deposit while the landlord ignores the rent uh, increase laws uh, which is something they perhaps might be able to to follow up Uh, but the state competes with this person now in the housing market they support cuckoo funds over taxpayers my 50% tax funds my 50% tax funds HAP payments of 1800 euro a month a rent or a social mortgage level that I can't afford as the taxpayer the wider social ramifications for this generation are huge Uh, thank you very much for that texter 53106 is the text number that you can get in touch uh, with your thoughts on that or anything else to hear you show here on the show this morning um i want to go back to the front page story that i mentioned earlier on the sunday times about broadband and the disclosure that uh, frank mccourt who was apparently cited as uh, the, the billionaire reason why david mccourt was able to uh, win this broadband contract uh, as cited by the department of communications speaking to the sunday times only last week um now apparently is not involved in the deal um Jared, I'm not sure whether the broadband story is now getting to the point where people are beginning to, to glaze over or whether people just simply want the government to get on and actually deliver it. But it seems to be a pretty fundamental uh, point of principle or governance or whatever you'd call it, that if the government says we're going to give David McCourt this contract based on the financial clout of his brother Frank mm. McCourt and now it turns out that Frank is not an investor in it, seems like a pretty material breach of process, doesn't it? It, it is. And I suppose people want both 
the options that you enunciated, Gavin, first of all, uh, they're pretty, uh, I think, peed off about the whole thing. And secondly, they want them to get on and do it. Mm. And, you know, the fact that it's illogical doesn't mean it's not the truth. Uh, but there's another big day coming up on this next Wednesday. The Oireachtas Committee on Communications has two sessions, morning and afternoon. They have an extending invitation to the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure, Robert Watt. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know one paper reports he will attend. I'm not clear he will, but uh, let's wait and see. But all of this will be gone through in detail, and that's 48 hours before polling day. So this is factoring in politically big time, and the opposition are going to give it this socks on Wednesday. Mm. Yeah, because they are getting it on the doorsteps. This is one issue that's been yeah. raised all the time, not just, you know, sometimes in a, in a campaign you have an issue that's kind of hitting the airwaves a lot mm. but on the ground it's something totally different you know this time it is broadband they're getting it councillors are getting it the local but election councillors who have fought for years to allow people build one off houses in the middle of nowhere are now the same councillors complaining that the people who built houses one off houses in the middle of nowhere can't get broadband uh, Sheila are they bringing it up on the doorsteps because of the cost in delivering it or because no one has been able to do it before now I think because no one has been able to do it before now and you know like this is an extraordinary story really on the front of the mm. Times today to be honest you know and the danger is that an issue like a story like that would actually just kind of disappear off the edge of the week in the week that's in it you know mm. but like it is a fairly significant issue as you've outlined there like who is backing like what is the story if we were told that Franklin Court's company was going to be yeah. was one of the investors and now they're implicitly saying they're not or this is the sources are saying they're not well then what is the story like Michael uh, Martin is quoted in it as saying there's too much ducking and diving going on and like really it's hard not to say it's that's actually pretty true it seems to be pretty true like what's yeah, happening well, with it? it it was something that obviously following on from it being on the front page of the Sunday Times last week Michal Martin raised this with the Taoiseach twice in leaders questions this week on Tuesday and Wednesday and said how do you defend or, or what is your story for taking on the resources or considering the resources of this guy's brother when you're considering whether this guy has the means to deliver it and Leo Varadkar sort of tacitly confirmed that it was the case that they said mm. yeah we looked at his resources and we reckon that there's there's enough, enough money there. there recourse they have the working capital to be able to put it all together uh, and this company is called McCourt Global LLC and it was supposed to have been uh, or at least was perceived to have been involved and now it's not involved because the consortium is just Granahan McCourt and, and Tetrad, Tetrad, which is another investment company which is owned by Walter Scott, who is an associate of David McCourt. But the brother with his billions and Olympic Marseille and all the other stuff that he's got at his disposal is not a part of it at all. And it just all seems a bit jarring that the government would make the assessment of whether this guy is worthy of the contract based on, based on that. And like, no what is it? To. Yeah. And so what is the story with it? And I mean, then when you look at Michael Brennan's piece in the Business Post as well, and, you know, the tenet of it is, and there in the subhead it says, you know, the KPMG warned the costs submitted by the top bidder were higher than the government estimate, but details in the report were redacted. So why were they redacted? Like, what's going on? Like, why wasn't this information uh, released? And, you know, what is happening? Now, as Jared says, Wednesday, the Communication Committee is meeting, and m- maybe this will all come out in the wash, as you say, two mm. days before an election. But, you know, I'd still say there'll be a lot of questions to be asked. But the fact of uh, Fine Gael in government, um, you know, having this launch, I think without all the uh, I's dotted and, and mm. the T's crossed and having all th- having that basic document you have in any launch called the FAQ, mm. the Frequently Asked Questions. I mean, whoever did the FAQ, mm. Uh, mm, yeah, no. They, they were Q's that are not asked all that F. I'm always amused by that when they decide what the frequently asked questions are before anyone has had a chance to answer any questions. (laughs) Well, you try and figure out what the potholes are uh, and they they didn't do that successfully. And if you go back five years ago to the last local and European elections, 
you know, Fine Gael had historically, and Labour had historically large win in a general election. Two years later, they tanked. Uh, why? Because in, apart from the fundamental issues of, of austerity, which they should not be blamed for, they compounded that by a series of self-inflicted issues, uh, medical cards, James Riley, Alan Shatter, justice issues. They couldn't have made a bigger bags of it in the few weeks up to those local and European elections. And now they seem to have replicated that. Well, at least stick with what you know. Uh, one text of 53106 says the first issue that our Taoiseach should obviously raise with the American president is the American government's current stance on climate change, which is probably a fair mm-hmm. point. Uh, Tony in Cork, however, says, lads, Irish people need to get a life if they think protesting against some Trump is going to make a fiddlers of a difference. Get up outside the doll and protest about broadband plan, children's hospital, housing and a million other problems that our government is responsible for. Uh, program, problems that, as you were illustrating, Jared, are often made right on the cusp of an election when the government actually needs... There's something about those... Elections, Gavin, to get people ferociously excited and giddy, and just on the broadband plan, there's a, yes. there's a nice piece in the in the, the Sindo uh, about uh, Avian Avian Mangan, the twelve year old who questioned Leo Ragger about uh, yes. broadband. It turns out that uh, well, she didn't have it for ages. Two two weeks ago, she actually got uh, broadband, mm. uh, and she now has it. And she's in 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 Clare, Morris and Mayo, which is part of the issue for the national broadband plan. Is that while it, while the the clock is ticking and that is not up and running, there are private companies. Uh, starting to reach into those areas and you know take some of the houses that were originally in the plan that mm. aren't and that's one of the reasons the figures are squeezed on it. Yeah, which but Adrian Weckler has been making the case before that if the government was to supply homes that now clearly can be demonstrated as being uh, accessible to by private operators, then it would leave itself open to being sued for breach of state aid because it's competing against the, the private market. Um, Sheila, on a total gear change in the couple of minutes we have left, are you terribly sad to see the back of Jeremy Kyle? Oh God, no, definitely not. I mean, I, I just think it's horrendous, horrendous. There's nothing good, I have to say, but I do not accept this notion that we're all snobs because we think it's terrible and that it's good that it's uh, he's, it's been cancelled um, I just think you know shows like that just ch- you know they cham- you know pounce on the most vulnerable people in society give them their what they think is their five minutes of fame but in actual fact it can be so detrimental to them you know it exposes the very worst people mm-hmm. and I don't mean the worst but the worst issues that are out there and it's just it's just awful what they do to people I I, I, I cannot I, I have no words for how glad I am that it is gone you know the last time I watched it was in the doctor's surgery I couldn't actually believe how bad it was it's just horrendous show but there's a piece in the Sunday Independent today by a man called Coleman Hutchinson who is a former TV producer and the headline over it which I think is a pretty neat summary of everything he says underneath is in defence of Jeremy Kyle he genuinely cared about the people on his TV show and I've, I've no doubt that this guy is sincere in his belief that Jeremy Kyle did care but Richie watching Jeremy Kyle you would never have thought that he was all that bothered about the welfare of the people sitting on the couch would you? <laughs> yeah, Jeremy takes the minimum wage and he lives among uh, the people that he has No, he doesn't he's only worth four million he doesn't no I mean maybe I mean I think the, the problem with TV programs like this is that you know they've been around for a while. You had them in in the states, the the, the Jerry Springer show and things. But now with social media, people go on these shows uh, and it doesn't end. You know, before you went on one of these shows, you made a bit of an idiot yourself. You had a difficult time. You went back to your town or village, and a few people might have said something to you, and maybe that was it. Mm. Now in 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 the UK, what was happening is people were getting on social media, finding these people's Facebook profiles, find them. And basically, you know, attacking them through through social media. And I think when you height, when you heighten the two, and that seems to be the problem with other reality stars as well, is that 
um, whatever stability they have in their own lives, there's this social media life that they're living where they're getting you know attacked or they you know the people are criticizing them all the time. And like you can you can say, okay, people aren't going to get affected by that, but the reality is is you would get affected mm. by it. Um, Jared, I know that the, uh, the the next obvious follow-on question from the cancellation of Jeremy Kyle is whether Love Island should be binned, and I'm sure that's something that you have huge thoughts on. Indeed, I was thinking of going on, I suppose they wouldn't have me, unfortunately. <laughs> Love <laughs> Island is nature's I, way I of telling sh- you to go to bed. I was, absolutely, <laughs> I was shattered, you know. Um, Look, you know, if you go back, there was a 17 minute video uploaded and re uh, and recirculated hundreds of thousands of times uh, when a maniac was shooting dead 51 people in mosques in in New Zealand. Uh, People used to go in their hundreds of thousands to the Colosseum to see people disemboweled by wild animals. So this is an innate fascination in in human nature to see horrible things done to other people. Mm. And there's just new ways of doing it all the time. So do you you think then that the cancellation of Jeremy Kyle will make the blindest bit of difference? No, not to human nature, but it's no harm to do it because it will stall off the worst for a little longer. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all uh, for coming in this morning. Really appreciated the chat. Jared Howland is a columnist with the Irish Examiner and a public affairs consultant. Richie Oakley is the editor of the Ireland edition of The Times and Sheila Riley is a former editor of The Longford Leader now head of digital with the iconic newspaper group. Thank you all very much for joining me.